Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. I'm Jason Flom, and I'm over the top excited because this is our 300th episode. Listen, I wish we never had to do any episodes at all, and I wish that these wrongful convictions weren't even a thing. But we're going to keep doing them for as long as we possibly can until my last breath, I'll be making these podcasts. But this is the 300th one, and we are honored, and I'm humbled to have as a guest host for this episode, my friend and personal hero, Mr. Erlon Woods. Now, Erlon, you probably know his name because he's the guy who created and co-hosted the groundbreaking podcast, Ear Hustle, which he produced while serving time in San Quentin Prison. So thank you for your continued support. We still have tons more work to do, and we hope you'll listen and get involved. Back in the 1980s, Caramel Conley was living in San Francisco, California. That was during the crack era, and police was doing everything they could to stump out gang activity. On April 8, 1989, there was a drive-by shooting in Caramel's neighborhood. Bullets injured 11 and killed two, Charles Hughes and Roshan Johnson. Of the eight people who were allegedly involved in the crime, only one person, Paul Green, was convicted and sentenced. The pressure was building for police to find other perpetrators. About a month before this crime happened, Karamad had gotten into a fight with another kid from school. It landed Karamad with an assault charge. So police created a narrative around this fight that it started a whole series of violent retaliations resulting in the drive-by shooting. Yet, police had no evidence beyond one witness who claimed he heard Karamah bragging about his involvement. Still, Karamah would be convicted of two murders and 10 attempted murders. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This is Wrongful Conviction. I'm Erlon Woods, and I'm the co-host and co-creator of a podcast called Ear Hustle, which brings you the daily realities of life inside prison shared by those living it. And we also do stories from the outside post-incarceration. And today, 
I have the pleasure of guest hosting Wrongful Conviction. And I'm here with a cat named Karamai Conley. And Karamai, I would like you to introduce yourself to the people. Hello, everybody. Uh, what's up, Erlon? Glad to be here. I'm excited about talking about the story. My name is Karamai Conley. I'm from originally Oakland, California, born and raised, raised between there and San Francisco, California. So, Karamad, um, can you describe your life prior to being arrested? I was born to a family of nine. I have five brothers, three sisters. Uh, our neighborhood was predominantly African-American, working class families. Um, everybody in the neighborhood knew each other, you know, mothers, fathers. You know, it was a great environment to grow up in. Cool. And and let me ask this. You know, you grew up in San Francisco. How was like law enforcement in your neighborhood? You know, did you have any prior run-ins with them or any anything leading up to Nah, and, that, and that's a great question, right? And it's interesting because my dad was in the military. So we had already kind of been instilled with that kind of country duty honor stuff. But my dream really was to be a SWAT officer when I was young, right? Back in those days they were considered the good guys. And I've always seen police officers like that. Did anything derail you from becoming a SWAT officer? Uh, yeah. Yeah. When I became a teenager. Um, so you, you have to tie in what they call the crack era, right? The drug era. That changed everything. That changed our whole community. That changed our perceptions of like the police. That changed everything. You started seeing people in our community, in our neighborhoods, like who started kind of indulging in the selling of it. So that's when you started seeing like, wow, look at that. You know, he got a new car. You know, you start seeing all these different things you've never seen before. So that's when I started understanding like there was a shift going on in our, our society and particularly in our community. You started seeing, you know, police more at the schools. You started those kind of interactions. So what we didn't know meaning like the kids in the community, teenagers, was that the police officers started creating these narratives around our community. So they started calling them TERFs, right? And we definitely believed that they were trying to take a page out of Los Angeles politics, gang politics and stuff and bring that there. And if you from like this area, you were part of this TERF and then this TERF. And people used to always uh, <laughs> try to correct these officers and journalists when they used to use these terms and people used to be like, what are y'all talking about? Like we ain't, this ain't no turf. So the police are creating this narrative, but did you identify with any gangs, Sunnydale or Bay Point or any of that? No, because it, it wasn't that type of thing, man. Like the only ones that created that narrative that was trying to put us in that was police officers. Okay. So I want to move into the story a little bit. In March 1989, you get into a fight with a friend from school named Jeff Franklin over some gossip going around. And then later on that same day, in an unrelated event, there's this other crime. A guy named Peter Lee is murdered. The police connect these two incidents, I guess, because they happened on the same day or something. So tell me about your first interaction with the police. How did they connect these two separate things? This is where I could introduce. Uh, Earl Sanders and Napoleon Hendricks because they were the two African-American veteran uh, homicide detectives. And uh, they were always wearing suits and these like fedora brims. And uh, they came to my house. They never called me to come down there. They came to my house. And my father was always a straight shooter. 
And he's like, well, you know, my son, I know he doesn't have anything to hide. So he didn't mind them talking to me. They started asking me about the situation with Jeff. Like, and I said, yeah, we had an altercation and, you know, we resolved it. We made peace and everything was cool. And uh, they started alluding to Peter possibly being murdered because of the altercation I had with Jeff. Right. This was their narrative. Like, so I was like, what are you talking about? So it was like they were trying to say what you did preceded this. So they, they started asking me about all these different people. And I'm like, yeah, I don't I don't know who you talking about. I don't know this person. I don't know that person. That's when they kind of formulated this. Uh, I don't know. I think they were they were pissed off that I wasn't really helping them. The narrative that the police were pushing was that this is all gang related. And then about a month later, on April 8th, 1989, there was a drive-by shooting in Bayview, in your neighborhood. Eleven people were injured and two people were killed, Charles Hughes and Roshan Johnson. And it's, it's really a terrible crime. It's sad. But how did you get wrapped up in all of this? There was a lot of pressure on the police to solve these crimes. You know, people in the community were coming out and they were like fed up with this stuff. And they were, you know, now the police are really just going crazy. Like, OK, because now they're saying that. This was retaliation for Peter Lee being killed. So now they come back to me again. So they now they come in with a different energy, like they're threatening me and all this other kind of stuff. So my pops was like, look, I'm not letting him talk to y'all again. You know what I mean? So that was it. And uh, but they were like, look, we're going to we're going to come back and get him if he doesn't help us, you know, get, you know, this, that and the other. So but in July, they came back with a warrant. So they charged me with that assault in that, at that time. But they had me thinking they were charging me with murders or whatever. So I'm like, this is why y'all arresting me? I'm like, well, that was already resolved. But the district attorney had picked it up. And so what I learned later was that because I had no criminal record, I, had, I was not even in the system. I said, this is a way for them to get me in the system under paperwork, right? So... You know, they booked me and ultimately I pleaded totally. I, even them, I told them, yeah, I did it. I did that. We had an issue and that's what happened and we resolved it. And I wasn't trying to hide it or nothing like that. So that's they end up giving me three years probation. And I spent like 30 days in, in, in jail in the county or whatever. They gave me three years probation. So meanwhile, Detective Saunders and Hendricks with their suits and their fedora brims, they end up arresting a guy named Paul Green for the drive-by shooting on April 8th. And during Paul's trial in 1992, you were called to testify. Yeah, it wasn't around till 92 when Paul Green's trial started that I get a subpoena to his court. So I get an outside lawyer, Donald Bergeson, who would later become my actual attorney. But I get him to represent me on this subpoena because I'm like, I don't have nothing to say to these people. So Paul Green goes on trial. You get subpoenaed and hired Donald Bergeson to represent you. And then at some point, you start to realize that there was more to this, that they were going to try to wrap you up in this same crime, that April 8th drive-by shooting that killed two people. Do you remember how you first heard about that? The rumblings started coming. Like, my lawyer started talking to me about, hey, uh, you know, they're talking about this guy. Like, they have some evidence against you for this. And I'm like, well, what? What? This is when Clifford Polk enters the picture. He was he was probably four years younger than me. But Clifford Polk was a guy who was really friends with my younger brother. 
that he was friends. We met, he was in high school. He was raised by a single mother. So we kind of took him in as a younger, like sibling, so to speak, because that's how my father was with the kids in the neighborhood. He would just, you know, be a father figure to a lot of these kids. Clifford Pope. Now, he's a pretty important character in this story because it's ultimately his evidence that they used to convict you. What did he say to the police to tie you into the crime? Pope brought in another mutual friend of ours named Batiste, Batiste Richardson. He said that Batiste loaned me a weapon. And then when Batiste went to retrieve the weapon back from me, like, hey, let me get that back. Cliff said that I said to Batiste, oh, you don't want that, man. That got Chief Charlie name written all over it. And Chief Charlie, that's Charles Hughes, one of the people murdered on April 8th. Cliff just made up a lot of stuff. He's just started making up stuff. Like I was selling guns out of my house and he was just making up stuff, right? And then they investigated Batiste, of course, to corroborate what Cliff said. And of course, Batiste was like, what? You know, this is bullshit. Like this did not happen. I don't know what this dude is talking about. So my attorney told me, they want you to turn yourself in. And I said, I've turned myself in for what? And he's like, they have a charge against you. Like they have a warrant. And it was probably two months before they finally came to the house while I was there and arrested me. Okay, so now we're getting into the trial. The prosecution's main argument was the testimony of Clifford Pope. There was some back and forth between both sides as to whether Polk was being incentivized by the police to implicate you. But Polk said on the stand that he wasn't in witness protection and he wasn't getting anything in return for his testimony. And this is really important. And we'll get back to that later on. So all this is going on and you actually decide to testify in your own defense, something that you rarely see. Why did you decide to testify? So one of the primary reasons why I testify is... Because one, I didn't do it, right? And I, I wasn't afraid to get up there. And I knew whatever the district attorney was going to say about me, like I had already admitted to it, meaning like my prior assault or whatever it was. Like, so I knew beyond that, anything he tried to allege against me, he would be just making it up. And I felt like I wanted to, I wanted to speak my piece. Like I wanted to be able to say, no, I didn't do this. And, and getting up there, I mean, how did, how did you feel about the trial? How did you gauge the jury? Did you think they was, they was listening? I just figured if they hear this information, they're going to side with the truth. So the way that the DA spun it, though, he painted a very effective picture. All they see is what's on TV, and it's like, like what I once thought. Police are good. Uh, if you weren't bad you wouldn't be coming from out of that holding tank in this orange. Like you would be coming from out here. Like it's all those dynamics were at play. And and going through that, going through that trial, you know, and I'm going to speak for, from personal, but going through a trial, you don't know what's going on. You don't know the law. You don't, you have no clue on whether it's up, down, whatever. You just sitting there. How long did your trial last? And when you was convicted, how did the words guilty hit you? Okay. So my trial lasted, I would say... I wouldn't say it lasted longer than two weeks. They tried to offer me a deal. So my lawyer came in there and he's like, I know this is the part that, you know, you you don't probably want to hear about. And, you know, but I have to do this, you know, like I have to offer you this. And, you know, Giannini is, is talking about a deal here. And I said, a deal? Like what? They're going to let me go and I don't sue them? What? Like, and he's like, well, no, you know, uh, he said, if you're willing to take 30 years, you know, uh, you could, 
I said, what? 30 years. Like, <laughs> so then my lawyer went down to like 15 years, right? And then he went down to like 10. And I said, I'm not taking a day. Like, I'm not. I'm not taking a day, period. I, and I told my lawyer, I said, man, they about to find me not guilty. We went out there and they, you know, the foreman read the verdict or gave it to the judge and the judge said guilty. It was a surprise. It was a shock. It was kind of surreal. So I just kind of sat with it like, okay, um, what do we do now? This episode is sponsored by the AIG Pro Bono Program. AIG is a leading global insurance company, and the AIG Pro Bono program provides free legal services as well as other support to many nonprofit organizations as well as individuals who are most in need. And they recently announced that working to reform the criminal justice system will become a key pillar of the program's mission. Once that happened, uh, you know, it was just guilty on all these charges, right? So you also have your lawyer. When you hear your lawyer say, Your Honor, we want to put this in a record to appeal this. So that means you have one last chance, which is you can go in front of the judge and then the judge can actually just do the right thing. You know, like I'm going to I don't believe that the, the, the a burden of proof was met on the side of the prosecution and. And that's what I was hoping for. And I really thought that that was going to happen. And I spoke to the judge. You know, I told the judge, I said, listen, all I expected was fairness and impartiality. And I haven't gotten any of that. So I'm appealing to your fairness and your impartiality in this matter. That's what I said to him. And uh, he gave me all these life sentences. Like, so well, yeah, what, was your, what was your sentence? Um, so I ended up with 12 life sentences, two without parole, plus 26 years. Damn, how long? How, I mean, I, I know I might be joking, but shit, how long would it have took you to do all that time? Well, it meant I would have had to die once, come back, die again, come back, die 10 more times, come back, and then do 26 years. That's what it meant. Like, the shit didn't make no sense to me. It was surreal. It did, I'm like, you could have just gave me one life sentence, and it would have helped me. But it, it essentially was a death sentence. That's basically what it was. Hey, hey, I used to clown with one of my partners. He had 210 years to life and shit under the three strikes law. And we used to be like, man, so when you get out? <laughs> okay, so you you on your way to prison from the county jail. And, I, I, you know, it's a trip, man. Uh, you know, I've always wondered about, you know, innocent people in prison. You know, uh, I, I was pretty much guilty for the uh, my actions, you know what I'm saying? But I always, while I was in prison, I used to always wonder what an innocent individual. So I got to ask, man, what was prison like for an innocent man? Man, look, I watched that movie before I ever went to prison before. Like it was American me. And I watched some other kind of penitentiary movies and that shit was just like scary as fuck. Right. So I was like, God, never, I never, never want to go to prison, right? And this is before any of that stuff. Like, it was just that environment, that culture, right? And San Quentin being the one place, especially back then, because when I went to San Quentin, like, the inmates were, like, the counselor. They did all the intake, you know, like, it wasn't you didn't go see a counselor. They did it. They gave you your CDC number. 
You know what I mean? Your picture looked like you one of them Alcatraz Island inmates. Like, so that's what I had. That was my experience. Like they, they did a special transfer because I was now like a sen- essentially a death penalty kind of case with them LWAP. So I didn't have to wait for the prison bus and load up. They literally got me out of there the next day. Like I didn't get a chance to say bye to nobody. Like as soon as I was convicted, the next day I was on that butt, on that van on my way to Quentin. And what was your mindset like going in with the LWAP sentence? You know, life without the possibility of parole. It did I didn't it didn't compute because it didn't make sense to me. Like I didn't understand what that meant. Like this is my first time going through something like this. So I didn't understand that it meant you gonna die in prison. You ain't never going to the board. I didn't understand any of that. I just assumed at some point somebody gonna get me back. You know, my lawyer or somebody gonna find something. That's and and again, we had an appeal in. So you you hanging on those hopes like that, your appeal and and uh so I I, I just told myself immediately, I said, you know what? I'm I'm just gonna meet this environment how it meets me. Like, that's what I'm about to do. I have to ask, man, like like what was a what was like a, a a bad day in prison for you? Every day. There's not a prison I went to. I'm talking about by the time I left prison, I had been to like 10 different and all maximum security prisons because of my LWAP. Everywhere up north to down south by the Mexican border in between. Like I've been to all of that. And I tell you, it was it was because of the 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 type of sentence I had, it meant that I was only gonna be around what they call the most violent kind of inmates, the most, you know, all of that stuff. And, uh, and, it, and it lived up to every, every word of that. Like two years after I was in prison, I was almost murdered in an unprovoked attack by some white supremacists. And just, just real quick, can, what, what happened? Me and a friend of mine were just like walking the track and, and uh, it was like these five, five guys, they were Nazi lowriders, as they call them, NLRs back then. And uh, they all had flat pieces of steel, like, and two of them came at my partner, like two of them, three of them came at me. And uh, thank God, like divine intervention in my fighting skills, because I did receive like some puncture wounds. Like I got about nine puncture wounds out of it because it was three of them. But uh, they didn't hit no vital. Uh, they wasn't able to hit vital organs because of the fact that I was fighting back um, and the guards were shooting and stuff like that. And uh, in turn... You know, that that put me in like a war mode mind. Like when your security is breached like that, like it's like what happened when uh, I was on the streets, like uh, my perception changed from that point. So so it's, it's safe to say you've seen a lot of violence in those level four prisons every day, every day. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. I was just like you. I, I looked at the Court of Appeals as a way to get out. How did, how did it work out for you in, 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 in post-litigation? Did you win your appeals? Denied. I was denied all the way through. Around 2001, uh, two other guys that I grew up with, John Tennyson and Anton Golf, uh, JJ and Soda Pop, that's what their names were. So around 2001, John's case started getting some traction in the news. A journalist by the name of A.C. Thompson, who had uh, worked for the Bay Guardian News at the time. So John Tennyson's brother, Bruce, always believed that his brother was falsely convicted. He decided to, I guess he connected some kind of way with this journalist, told him, man, my brother is innocent and this and that, and these police are lying. And so A.C. Thompson decided to investigate it. He discovered that the exact same homicide detectives, Earl Sanders and Napoleon Hendricks, that had done that to me, had prior done it to John Tennyson and Anton Golf in their case. There had already been a videotape confession of the person who had already killed uh, the people that John and Anton had been convicted of. They had already had a videotape confession of the person who did it, admitted to it. They suppressed it. When the Bay Guardian newspaper came out with John Tennyson's face on the front of it and like questioning whether this man should be in prison, his brother, Bruce, worked for this like car lot. He was a car lot attendant. And next to his car lot was the law firm Kecker and Van Ness. So what Bruce did was Bruce took all those Bay Guardian newspapers out that thing and he put them on their car windows and they had happened to have a pro bono wing in their uh their firm so they investigated and sure enough they found out that there was a suppressed tape and that these two guys had been framed so 
at the same time in 2003 that they were being exonerated, I received a letter out the blue from the Innocence Project. I sent the letter to my father and my father gathered up all my information that they were requesting and sent it to him. So um, the Innocence Project, once they connected the dots and seen that we had the same homicide detectives that had done all of this, they was like, they started coming to visit me. Yeah, this is a crazy kind of story. The Northern California Innocent Project ends up taking your case and they bring it to Kecker and Van Ness, hoping they would have some more information that could help you out. They end up talking to this lawyer, a guy named Daniel Purcell, who worked on John and Antoine's case. And Daniel Purcell says to this day, he said, if it wasn't for your name, you would still be in prison. He said the name registered. And he said, like, where have I heard that name from? During the investigation of John and Anton's case, they sent an investigator. They had a motion for discovery. and, And I guess the city said, you can go check this storage unit and these files and whatever. You know, and he had to go under like he had to go under the debris and all of this stuff to pull these boxes out. It just so happened to have numerous boxes with my name and all kind of other stuff connected to it. And Dan was like, so the first thing Dan did was he contacted my old attorney, Donald Bergeson. And he's like, hey, Don, like, you know, who to tell him who he was, what they were doing. He said, yeah, so we have these boxes and it has all these receipts and this and this and this. And my lawyer at the, uh, Donald was like, I knew it. I effing knew it. He was like, and then it made sense to me because back when I was in trial, this man used to file so many damn motions, right? And he always alleged that the district attorney, Alfred Giannini, was withholding information and not turning everything over. So much so that we had to have a special hearing in order to resolve it once and for all. And that's when Giannini went on the record and back then and was like, Your Honor, we have given I've given and furnished uh, Mr. Bergeson with everything, this, that, and the other. So now we got all this suppressed evidence sitting right here. So what ultimately came to light from all those boxes of suppressed evidence was that Clifford Polk not only lied when he named you, but he was actually paid to do it. In the trial, Clifford said that he wasn't in witness protection, but the evidence in those boxes proved that he was. He'd been paid a nice chunk of change to name you in this crime. And then in 2005, 10 years after you were sent to prison, Cliff recanted his testimony. He said that he was telling the truth now because he could no longer live with the guilt of you being in prison for a crime you didn't do. Do you hold any animosity towards him? I never saw Cliff as anything other than like a victim as like me. Cliff is a young kid, you know, and... He's scared to death of these homicides. They do the same, I assume, the same thing that they tried to do to me, to him. But it worked on him. And your lawyers from the Northern California Innocent Project ended up taking this suppressed evidence all the way to the California Supreme Court. Yeah, by 2009, the California Supreme Court, which I think this happens less than 7% of the time with LWAP cases, but they granted me an evidentiary hearing. So for the first time in all these years, I was able to come back in 2010 for a week and we were able to depose the district attorney. And I think Hendricks, the uh, Sanders partner, had passed away in 08 by this time. So they were also able to interview and depose Earl Sanders. And uh, basically, they just was blaming each other. Like Alfred Jenny was saying, no, they never gave us this stuff. Sanders was saying we gave Giannini all this stuff. 
and I'm just sitting back like, whatever, y'all still fucked up. Like it ain't y'all, y'all lied, period. So Judge Marla J. Miller, she uh she looked through it and she saw through it. And she ultimately uh she vacated my conviction December 14th, I believe it was. So Karima, as you know, I was commuted by Governor Brown. My life sentence was commuted, gone. And I know what I felt like. I have to ask you this. How did you find out that you were getting out? I was just at, in the cell. Like they had sent me back to prison and I was doing what I do. And uh, one of my friends came up to me and he was like, man, you know, you're going home, right? <laughs> and I was like, what? He was like, man, you're going home. And he slid the newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle to me under my door. And it had my article right there on the front page, judge vacates conviction, right? So I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh shit. So then you really start feeling like, get me out of here right now. You know, what am I doing here? Like you think you free now, right? Yeah. Trust. I know that feeling about let me out now, but the DA can hold you in there to see if the city wants to retry the case. But luckily for you, the DA at the time, Kamala Harris, the one that wants you to wait and see what happens with the city, she was leaving office to take a new job as the California Attorney General. She was being replaced by a new DA, George Gascon. The first major order of business he did was dismiss my case outright. Like, just straight up, just dismissed it. And, uh, and then I would uh, be released January the 12th. January the yes. 12th, 2011. Shout out to yeah. George Gascon. Absolutely. That's a good man right there. And you you have to explain, man, like, what was that day like when you first walked out? Like, what did you do? Of course, I was elated to be getting out. But now it's like, fuck, like, you know, I'm out of prison. Now what? You know what I mean? Like, I'm coming out of a controlled environment, extremely controlled environment to just basically be able to do what I want to do. So it was overwhelming. Like, it was scary. It was I was happy about it. Um, But it was it was just like, I got to take this one day at a time. Mm. But then ultimately, I just kind of, you know, was like, you know what? I'm going to take this head on out here, you know, and uh, that's what I did. I never looked back, you know. And now that you're free, what are you doing? Well, when I first came home, like I was I was uh, I was always like going to different law schools, you know, and talking talking to the uh, first and second year law students. And I was doing this like all over the state. Like I was just going everywhere, anywhere I was invited. Like, I love talking about this story because it, it feel like it, it almost feels like it's not me I'm talking about, you know. Um, and I kind of I kind of always say I was already free mentally, spiritually. I was already free. They just physically had my body. So I was very focused, like prior to getting out of prison, like I was very focused on how I was going to live my life, what I was going to do. One of the main things was to be able to get back in the prison, to be able to walk back through that visiting room as a free person you know, with people that I literally grew up with in prison because I spent at that point half my life in there. So uh, that was one of the most empowering things was to be able to get uh, approved by the CDC to come back in and visit, you know, and. uh, And that's where I met you. Yep. That's exactly what happened. I I was serving the life sentence and you came in and that's how I met you. Yeah. So from that point, it was all about, okay. I know all these great stories and, and different people in prison. And I always say prison is one of the most untapped markets for creatives. So uh, in 2016, I ultimately created a, a, a production company, uh, Lifted Clouds. And uh, the goal there was to just bring a lot of uh, guys' content, um, books, 
you know, personal stories, you know, all of this to the to the public, you know, because it's some amazing it's some amazing people in there. Caramel Conley, we thank you for definitely telling us your story of being wrongfully convicted in California, man. And I'm glad you're out here doing your thing, man. And and appreciate everything you're doing. Yeah, I appreciate y'all having me on here. So, Caramel, you know I always wanted to be a lawyer. So, now we're coming to what's called closing arguments. Do you have any final thoughts, any epiphanies? What would you like to share with the wrongful conviction listeners? You know, I would just say that, uh, you know, it's like there's this there's this this kind of myth where people say, you know, everybody in prison say always say they're innocent. Right. Everybody says they're innocent when they're in prison. Um, and that's a myth. Honestly, like there are guys, most of the guys that I was in prison with. They said they did the crime. They just didn't believe they should have got the time that they got. Like I said, essentially a life without parole sentence is a death sentence. But imagine if they would have gave me the death penalty and I would have actually died on death row, you know, and then you see all of it. Yeah. So that's that's the scary part about all of this. We think our systems are perfect and and they're not. They're not. They need to be absolutely reformed from the inside out. And I'm going to tell you something which might come as a surprise. I'm not anti-law enforcement. By no means, you know. So so do you yeah. still want to be a SWAT member? I am a SWAT member. It's in a different <laughs> way. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's yeah. and one thing I can't say after this whole story, man, is uh you got the best name because your name is what got you back into the game. So No doubt, man. I thank my father and my mom for that. Cause growing up, it was hell having that name because nobody can pronounce it right, you know. Shout out to my mom and pops, you know, for that. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Erlon Woods. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis. The senior producer for this episode is Jackie Pauley, and our producers are Lila Robertson and Jeff Clyburn. Our editor is Rook Sandra Guidi. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Raff. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Erlon Woods and check out Ear Hustle, the podcast I co-created with Nigel Poor, wherever you get your podcasts. We also wrote a book called This Is Ear Hustle, Unflinching Stories of Everyday Prison Life. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. On next week's guest-hosted episode of Wrongful Conviction, my friend and personal hero, exoneree and musician Jimmy Dennis, is going to interview Chester Holman III about their harrowing, tragic, shared experiences of having been locked up in Philadelphia for crimes they didn't commit. Now, both men were put away by the notorious, infamous, and even, I'm going to say, evil prosecutor Roger King, who get this, he put more people on death row
than anyone else in Pennsylvania history. And we know a bunch of them were innocent. And there's a lot of guys we'll never know about who we put on death row who are innocent as well. It's, it's sickening. But it's a must-hear story. It's going to be on Monday in the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.